You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, good morning, everyone, and it's a joy to be together as we worship the Lord. And let me invite you to turn to the book of Malachi. If this is your first time here with us this morning, we're glad you're here. And we have been working uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this minor prophet book of Malachi. And so it's the very last book in the Old Testament. So if you go to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and go left, you should be able to find Malachi. And today we arrive at a section of Malachi uh, that is challenging in a lot of different ways as we seek to apply it and put it into practice. And so let me read God's word for us, and then we will pray, and then we will dive in to see what God will teach us from his word this morning. So let's read Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10, and we'll go through verse 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach this text of Malachi, we are thankful, Lord, that your word is good and profitable for the building up of your church. Lord, that from your word, we preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we particularly consider this word from Malachi, Lord, we are reminded that sin has permeated and affected every aspect of our existence. And Lord, perhaps sin's most disastrous and destructive effects are most clearly seen in marriages and family. So Father, we pray that today that we would heed Malachi's hard and firm word that we need to hear, but Lord, also that we would be reminded 
of your grace, of your mercy to restore, to redeem, to renew, to forgive. Lord, even as we consider our recurring faithlessness when it comes to marriage and family, we are grateful that Christ is faithful. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. There are few matters, few areas of subject, few areas of our lives that are as laced with emotional charge as the issue of marriage and divorce. To different degrees, I think we have all known the pain that comes when sin has ransacked a marriage. I think all of us know people who have been divorced Perhaps you've been divorced yourself. We know the sort of pain and carnage that divorce can leave behind. But, you know, our culture has tried to do the opposite as it thinks about divorce. It's largely seen divorce and has marketed it as a triumph of personal autonomy, right? Divorce, in the world's view, is nothing more than a conscious uncoupling a final act of love for a spouse by untying them from the marriage commitment, thereby in the divorce permitting each person to be be more fully their authentic selves. That's the way our culture talks about divorce. But despite the deluded lies that we tell ourselves as a culture, broken marriages leave families in ruins. Divorce is like Godzilla dancing in Manhattan. The waltz of personal freedom leaves behind the carnage of people caught underfoot the joyous jig. You see, Malachi's prophetic word here rebukes the faithlessness of Israel's marriages. And it confronts us, it confronts our culture with how we think and how we talk about marriage and divorce. So Malachi's rebuke might be distressing. I think it ought to be distressing to us as we consider it. But his words are profoundly relevant to us today, aren't they? Culture today has abandoned largely any sort of covenantal view of marriage. And sadly, I fear the church has joined the monster dancing in the streets. In many ways, the church has been complicit in the redefinition of marriage we have witnessed in our lifetime. By accepting no-fault divorce as irreconcilable differences. We've, we've accepted them. We've tolerated such reasons for divorce in our communities. You see, there is much that Malachi has to say about our country and about marriage. But my aim today is not to preach a Jeremiah against America. My aim today is to apply Malachi's teaching about marriage to the church, to the church. After all, Malachi writes this third disputation to God's covenant people, not to the nation of Persia. As Peter says, judgment begins in the household of God. The Apostle Paul would say, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So as we think about Malachi's words here, I'm I'm targeting primarily the church. 
You see, as we hear this hard word of Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 through 16, you may sense along the way your own faithlessness in your own marriage. In a similar way to Israel, as, as a work of prophecy, Malachi gives a sharp edge to convict and to pierce our hearts. But my tone in this sermon will seek to imitate Malachi's in some ways. Indeed, I think part of being a good expositor of the word is not just preaching the word rightly, but having the tone of the sermon match the tone of the passage being preached. And so there will be this prophetic edge to the sermon as we expound upon this passage. But in some ways, I will aim to lay the prophetic hammer on us today. I aim to do so with a hammer wrapped in the velvet cushion of the gospel. Divorce is not an unforgivable sin. Faithlessness in marriage is not an unforgivable sin. All sin, all sin is covered by the Lord Jesus Christ as he pours out his blood for sinners like us. None of us are uncondemned, right? We are all condemned before God, but we praise the Lord for Christ. So where you feel over the course of this sermon this morning, perhaps guilt over past failures, I pray that you will be comforted by the cross of Christ. And I hope to come full circle this morning and remind you of the faithfulness of Christ, even amid our unfaithfulness in marriage before the end of the sermon. But take heart, if you feel bludgeoned this morning by the Spirit through the preaching of his word, take heart, a bruised reed he will not break. So in sum, today as we looked at Malachi, we want to profess the gospel by pursuing godly faithfulness. In marriage, we want to profess the gospel by pursuing godly faithfulness in our marriages. Now, I want to first consider this morning, going carefully through Malachi, consider the sort of faithless marriages that we see described here in Malachi, marriages that profane the covenant of God. And then I want to spend a little bit of time at the end of the sermon thinking through, well, what does faithful marriage look like? A faithful marriage that professes the gospel and give us three words of application in response to Malachi's word to us today. So let's first consider faithless marriage and how it profanes God's covenant. This is what Malachi is talking about in our passage today. Now, Malachi addresses two different but very much interlinked issues of Israel's covenant faithfulness regarding marriage. Here are the two issues the text raises. The first issue is that Israel's interfaith marriage with foreigners. That's a problem. They're marrying those who worship false gods. Second, the faithless divorces of the wives of one's youth. Those are the two concerns that leads to Malachi giving us, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this prophetic disputation. Now remember, Malachi has six disputations over the course of the book, and structurally, Malachi places this disputation in the next as kind of the center point of the book for emphasis. In a lot of ways, we're approaching the most emotionally intense section of the book of Malachi. And we kind of see that intensity as Malachi begins to use this sort of prophetic use of we in these opening verses of the disputation. Malachi is including himself under this sort of prophetic rebuke that he is getting ready to give. 
You see, the marriage crisis happening in Israel is a national crisis. But it's not merely a national crisis. It is a spiritual crisis that is affecting the worship of God's people. And so Malachi sounds the alarm and raises a cry. So let's look at these two key issues going on in terms of Israel's marriages. The first is that the Lord forbids marriage to an unbeliever. We see this in verse 10, 11, and 12 of Malachi. Now, as Malachi begins this disputation, the Lord raises some rhetorical questions here. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? These are rhetorical questions. The answer to them is obvious. It is, yes, we do have one father. Yes, we do have one God who has created us. Malachi begins by emphasizing the unity of God's covenant people, that we are God's people created and adopted by God, a point which Malachi emphasizes at the very start of the book, if you remember. We are God's people. He has chosen us. He has made us his. So the two rhetorical questions are followed up by a third question. Look at what the text says, verse 10. Why then are we faithless to one, of, to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? You see, this is fascinating because Malachi sees that private, private marriages have public consequences. Private marriages have public consequences. Israel's faithless practice of marriage is profaning the covenant of God's people. That the corrupt marriage practices not only dishonored the Lord, but it is a faithlessness to one another within the covenant community. That those who belong to God's covenant ought to exhibit a faithfulness to one another in the same way the Lord who is faithful to us has brought us together. And so the breakdown of Judah's marital covenant is profaning the covenant of God. This is the seriousness of the issue at hand. And it's not until verse 11 that we begin to see, well, really what's going on here? What is the specific practice that is of such concern to the Lord? We see it in verse 11. Judah has married the daughter of a foreign God. Judah has married a daughter of a foreign god. Israel in the Old Testament is frequently commanded not to marry foreign women. Now, God is not forbidding interracial marriage. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's not what the Old Testament is talking about in those commands. What God is banning is interfaith marriage. By marrying foreign women, Israel would adopt the idolatrous worship practices of the foreign nations, of the pagan nations. You see, in the, in the early uh, ancient world, national identity went together with religious identity in the ancient world. So God commands deal with the pure worship of his covenant people. Marrying a foreign person would often bring this temptation, this lure, this, this infection among God's people of idolatry. And so Malachi emphasizes this point, that Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god, right? Idolatry is the issue, not the, the race of the person being married. And so the mixed marriages take place in Judah. This was a, a grave problem that is happening during this time period in Israel's history. In fact, it's such a problem, Ezra and Nehemiah both deal with it. 
Israel's marriage of foreign women profaned the covenant of God that God had made with Sinai. And as Israel would flirt with idolatry with their foreign wives, it would often demand God's judgment. After all, remember, they just returned from exile in Babylon for 70 years because of their idolatry. Do they really want to depart and do it all over again? Did they not learn their lesson the first time? And so Malachi is giving this prophetic injunction, calling for God to cut off from the people any man who does such a thing. Anyone who would marry the daughter of a foreign god, Malachi injuncts the Lord, praying that that person would be cut off, in verse 12, from the tents of Jacob. Now, what does all this have to do with us Gentile Christians, right? We're not a part of the nation of Israel. After all, we're not Israel. Does Malachi's words here have any bearing upon you and I? Yes, they do. You see, as Christians, we are free to marry from any nation, right? The skin color of a potential spouse makes no difference to the Lord. But yet the New Testament does affirm the same principle that Malachi gives here, that as Christians, we must only marry believers, only marry believers. And if you become a believer while you're already married to someone, the New Testament says you should honor that marriage and you should remain committed to your unbelieving spouse and hope that by your witness and testimony, they may be one to the Lord. But yet if you are a Christian single, you must listen carefully to Malachi's command not to marry an unbeliever. Now, when speaking of this, and when Christians often talk about this, we often use the language of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And in the New Testament, the apostles will often speak of the incredible challenges that occurred in that first century, as many people, particularly wives, were coming to know the Lord, but their husbands were not, as the gospel is spreading across the world. And that often brought really difficult challenges to the, the, the believing spouse in that unbelieving marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Peter 3, this apparently was such a prevalent issue that it's addressed two different times in the New Testament. How do we handle marriage when one spouse believes and one spouse doesn't? It's challenging. It's hard. And of course, that believing spouse is urged to remain married. It's a one flesh covenant. And they should hope that by their witness that the unbelieving spouse might be one to the Lord. But yet this scenario in the New Testament is never presented as an ideal or a model scenario. That if marriage is a union of two people becoming one flesh, it's a partnership that ought to reflect the beauties of the gospel that we believe. So Christians should never knowingly enter into a marital covenant with someone who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Marriage, as we will see, is a permanent marital covenant. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, he says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So did you catch what Paul says there, right? That, that in the event of a husband's death... The woman is liberated from the marital covenant. She's free to marry again. But notice what Paul says, that she is only free to marry again in the Lord, in the Lord. Marriage is only permissible for such a woman, right? If it is in the Lord, meaning with another Christian. 
You see, when it comes to the Christian life, we are either celibate and single, or we are married and fruitful. Singleness is a beautiful gift that God has given to the church and to many Christians. It is a calling from the Lord that Paul often describes, one in which you can fully devote yourself to the Lord without the hindrances and anxieties of family life. It is a gift to be cherished. And if you are a single Christian, you can display by your life and and ministry the supreme value and worth of God in your life. You see, single Christians lack no thing. And you have the opportunity to showcase the sufficiency and glory and worth of Christ that you have everything you need in Jesus. In fact, Paul wished that everyone could be single like he was. He thought it was the better way, the preferred way. So often the temptation for a Christian to marry an unbeliever comes when that, un, that believing single person begins to resent God for their singleness. You see, they start to long for marriage more than they longer long for God. And it becomes this sort of cynical distrust of God's providence. They think, and this is the temptation, they think that, well, well, it's better to be married to an unbeliever than to remain single in the Lord. And so they rebel against the Lord with discontentment, and they marry one they ought not to marry. You see, if I, I pray that if you are single, and we've got many singles in our church, I praise the Lord for that. But if you're considering marriage, I pray that you would heed the counsel of God's word. And listen carefully to this. It is better for you to remain single all your life in obedience to the Lord than to unite yourself in marriage to someone who is not a believer. Christian marriage is intended to be a picture of the gospel. We'll talk about that as we go today. Two souls mingled together in a covenantal union, growing in Christ together, working together for the cause of the Great Commission, for the glory of Jesus. And think about this. After all, if if Christ is your life, how could you unite yourself to him, to someone who despises Jesus? That if your aim in Christ is to grow in holiness, why would you marry someone who hinders your growth in Christ? And that if in Christ your aim is to bring glory to God in your life, why would you marry someone who doesn't aspire to bring glory to God in their lives? You see, we have to be very careful about who we choose to marry. As Christians, our entire lives must be submitted unto the Lord, including who you marry. So do not let your feelings of loneliness, of of frustration with God, drive you to rebel against him in a way that will be spiritually disastrous and ruinous for your soul. Yet whatever marriage we enter, we must be faithful in those marriages. And that leads us to the second concern that Malachi raises here. This is the issue of divorce that the Lord forbids divorce without biblical reason. Now, in verse 13, Malachi builds upon the first issue by raising a second issue, an issue that was hindering the worship of God's people. This is why it's so severe. Malachi describes how they shed tears, they groan, they weep at the altar, and all of this is presented in Malachi as some sort of phony humility, right? It's, it's not true conviction over sin, that the pervasive divorce culture in Israel 
not only displeased the Lord, but was actually affecting the praise of God's people. And so Israel responds, why does God not accept our offerings? And the answer comes in verse 14. Look at what the text says. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You see, Malachi emphasizes that in marriage, the Lord stands by as a witness. He is there authorizing and and approving of the covenant being made between a man and a woman. Now, marriage is a covenant commitment before God. This is the way the Bible talks about marriage. This goes all the way back to Genesis. As we go back early in the Bible, in the first marriage, the use of covenantal language is described in the union of the first man and the first woman. The Lord says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is covenantal language being used in Genesis chapter 2. You see, marriage is not just an agreement between two parties. It is a covenant made in the witness of God. Usually the first two words, first few words I utter at a wedding are, we are gathered here today in the sight of God and these witnesses. When I pronounce the couple as man and wife, I say, for as much as the couple have consented together in holy wedlock and have witnessed the same before God and these witnesses. You see, in marriage... God stands by as a witness of the formation of this marital covenant. You see, marriage is intended by God as a permanent covenant lasting the lifetime of the husband and the wife. Malachi shows us the the seriousness of the permanence of this covenant. You see, these Israelite men were discarding the wives of their youth. And and the reason for this is unknown. We're not entirely sure why they were doing so. Perhaps the wives were not as youthful as they used to be. How many men have done that today? More likely, due to economic opportunity, these men were most likely marrying foreign women in order to get connected to wealthier families and have more opportunity. And so perhaps what was happening is maybe this is one big concern happening in Israel. Perhaps these men were divorcing the Jewish wives of their youth to marry foreign women instead, most likely for the economic opportunity. Whatever the reason is, the Lord is appalled at such action, right? He is grieved by their faithlessness in marriage. Now, verse 15 and 16 of the text here are two of the most difficult verses to translate in the entire Old Testament. They are that difficult. Every scholar I've encountered along the way in preparing for the sermon talked about how difficult these two verses are to translate. So we're unsure of precisely what the Hebrew means, and every translator has to do some interpretation just to put them into English. Now, I don't have time to go into all the different views of translating these two verses, but still, I think in verse 15, the the English Standard Version rightly recognizes that what Malachi is doing in verse 15 is alluding to Genesis. He's alluding to Genesis. He's referring to the one flesh union of Adam and Eve. 
And, you know, after all, Jesus makes a very similar move when he is dealing with the issue of divorce. He points back to Genesis. He does that in Matthew 19, the passage we read earlier this morning, that God had a created design for marriage that preceded the covenant of Sinai, the law of God. Malachi, just as Jesus would, affirms that God's created intention for marriage is a permanent union. Before sin ever entered into the world, that was God's desire for the marital covenant. So the Bible permits divorce due to adultery or abandonment. That is not God's ideal, though. God permits divorce under strict circumstances due to man's hardness of heart, Jesus said. And it's part of just the complexities of living in a fallen, sinful world. So though understanding these verses here, verse 15 in particular, it's complex. The main point of the admonishment is clear, though. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. You see, God did not permit divorce just to be able to discard your wife and to move on to greener pastures or to another woman. The marital covenant is a permanent bond to divorce your spouse without biblical reasons for doing so is sin. Now, the question over how to translate verse 16 revolves around who is doing the acting in the, in the verse. Is it God who hates divorce, or is it the man who hates his wife? There are good reasons to argue for translating it either way, but I think God hates divorce makes the most sense in this disputation in terms of its context. Here, I think the ESV doesn't quite get it right. I think one commentator gives a good translation of this verse, which says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Even the one who covers his garment with marks of violence, says the Lord Almighty. You see, divorcing one's spouse, God says, is an act of injustice. Right, it's covering up the garment with violence. It violates and cheapens God's own covenant with his people. It wrongs the wives who are just being discarded away for foreign women. Israel's faithlessness to one another in marriage is a profaning injustice against the covenant of their fathers. Though some specifics of the translation are debated. Verse 16 is really clear. Do not be faithless. Do not be faithless. So as Christians, we should get married to a believer, right? Understanding that our marriage is a permanent union. And due to the hardness of heart, we understand that the Bible permits divorce under certain circumstances. Now, the two circumstances I've already alluded to that the Bible permits divorce for are adultery and abandonment. Abuse is often one that's thrown in there. Uh, and abuse demands, of course, immediate separation and often leads to the unbelieving spouse abandoning the marriage because Lord knows they're not going to repent, right? And so as I consider these issues of, of Christians and divorce in the church today, I want to share with you three consistent and perhaps serious errors as Christians think about divorce today. First, many Christians get divorced without biblical permission. This is a big problem, particularly in the rising of the no-fault divorce culture that emerged in the 1970s and the 1980s. 
Christians have largely adopted the same reasons for divorce. And so listen carefully, growing apart, falling out of love, disliking one another, relational conflict, that does not provide you with biblical permission to seek a divorce. Instead, if a couple is finding themselves in that sort of conflict, the couple should seek counsel. They should seek help from their local church. And they ought to look to Christ together to seek repentance and prayer and hope that the Lord would revive and renew the joy in their marriage. But those reasons in and of themselves are not biblical warrant for divorce. A second concern I see is that many Christians consider the categories of adultery and abandonment as requiring divorce instead of permitting divorce. I think this is another grave error I see in the church today. That if your spouse commits adultery against you, you are not required by the scripture to divorce them. We can't confuse God's permission to divorce as a mandate for divorce. Divorce for the Christian must always be the last and most painful option in the Christian life. We should aspire and long to exhibit God's design in the permanence of that union, which means that often we extend forgiveness in a costly way, but we should do so. You see, the second concern leads to a third one that I often see, and it's that many Christians seem eager to get divorced. They seem eager to get divorced because Adultery and abandonment are the biblical criteria that permit a divorce. They, some Christians come across as a bit trigger-happy to kill the marriage. Almost as if they, they can, I'll do whatever it takes to, to make the circumstances fit so that I got biblical warrant to get a divorce. They almost rejoice in their spouse's adultery so that they now have cause to evict themselves out of the marriage. Such an attitude is sinful and faithless. You see, if the circumstances permit divorce, the Christian should first seek to do everything possible to pray, to desire, and to work towards reconciliation. Christians ought to work with persistence for the restoration over an extended time before filing for divorce is ever considered an option. I fear that many believers do injustice do injustice by exiting their marriages too quickly and too flippantly. Their speed in the divorce process often exposes an eagerness to escape the marriage, not an eagerness to reconcile the marriage. That's a problem. You see, God hates divorce, and we should hate it too. And we should long to extend grace and forgiveness and love to a spouse who has wronged us. We must be open and willing to reconcile the relationship and truly pray to God that he would restore and renew the marriage as a testimony to the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But yet it is easier to walk away, to pull the eject button, at the whiff of adultery or abandonment. But yet do such actions honor the Lord? Does being quick to divorce uphold the permanence and beauty of the marriage covenant? Does it best reflect God's committed love to you in your sin? 
and in your marriage to Christ. You see, sometimes due to the hardness of heart, due to unrepentant sin, due to the fallen complexities of this world, sometimes divorce happens. And if one party persists and pleads for reconciliation and the other refuses, sometimes there are no other options. But usually the abandoning party will tend to be the one who files for divorce in those circumstances. But yet divorce is not something to celebrate. Our culture wants to celebrate it. Christians should never celebrate it. We should grieve as divorce is a sad and tragic reminder of the effects of human sin in a fallen world. Thus, even if you may tragically go through a divorce, a divorce, you should hate it as God does. So those of you who are married, there's a warning here, right? Guard yourselves, give watch over your soul and your marriage. Do not be faithless to the covenant that you have made with your spouse. But yet, instead of just offering this sort of prophetic corrective to marriage, I also want to take a little bit of time this morning and try to apply Malachi 2 in a more positive vision. Faithless marriage may profane God's name, but faithful marriage also professes God's gospel. And I want to spend some time thinking through that second category as we try to apply Malachi together this morning. A faithful marriage professes God's gospel. God's vision for marriage is good, it's beautiful, it's joyous, right? Though Malachi gives this firm and needed corrective, Lord knows it's one that we need today, I want to help us see that the biblical vision for marriage as God prescribes it is a glorious one. It is a good one. Let Let me offer us three applications as we try to put Malachi's words into practice. First one is this that Christians should joyously submit to God's definition of marriage as a testimony to the gospel. We should joyously submit to God's definition of marriage as a testimony to the gospel. You see, because God takes marriage seriously, that means that his people ought to take marriage seriously. That if as Christians, God has united us together in Christ, part of being faithful to God in our Christian walk means that we are faithful to one another, especially to our spouse. As a gospel people, our vision and understanding of marriage must be different than the watching world. It's got to be. The biblical vision for marriage is between one man and one woman for one lifetime bound in covenant before God. God's design here for marriage is good for the family. It's good for society. It's good for the cause of human flourishing in the world. And so the erosion of marriage and family that we have seen literally in our lifetimes has left in its wake the wreckage of loneliness and poverty. Though our country has redefined marriage away from its biblical vision, as God's people, we insist that while the state has a responsibility to recognize true marriage, the state cannot define true marriage. It is outside Caesar's jurisdiction that the institution of marriage precedes that of government. Marriage was instituted by God in the garden. And thus, God has the right and the authority alone to define it. And God does not lie, 
and God does not change. You see, even though the Christian vision of marriage conflicts with our government's definition, as Christians, we obey the word of God. When it comes to our sexuality, when it comes to our marriages, we obey the Lord. And so we believe then that marriage is between one man and one woman for a lifelong covenant made before God. And marriage alone, as the scriptures command, is the proper avenue and place for sexual activity and fruitfulness. This is the clear teaching of God's word. Now, while the the world looking in on us might consider that such a vision that I've just described from you from God's word for, for marriage and sexuality, they might say that that is harmful, that it's oppressive, that it's hateful. God's people knows that God gives his commands in righteousness, right? God's word is not burdensome or oppressive. Rather, it guards us against sin. And doing things God's way fills us with joy. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 19, verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, right? They're right, and they cause joy. You see, God's instructions on marriage and divorce are good. Malachi chapter 2, this is a good word, and it should be received as joy by God's people. That while the world may mock and scorn, that we should display joy and gladness in God's wisdom and concerning marriage and family. It is wise and good that God has decided to do it this way. Christian marriage will seem increasingly countercultural in our world today. It already is, it's going to become more so. God instituted marriage to be a picture of the gospel, of these gospel realities that we believe. Paul in Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. And so because of the gospel, married Christians have a unique opportunity to provide a countercultural witness by displaying a permanent love of Christ in our marriages. You see, the permanence and sweetness of Christ should be displayed in your marriage. That the mystery of marriage, Paul says, is profound. And he tells us it refers to Christ and the church. Whether you are married or single, single people also have a unique opportunity here, right? To provide a countercultural example that testifies to the goodness of the gospel to the love of Christ. They can do that in their singleness. Single people get to demonstrate that that Christ is valuable and worthy and that he alone demands their complete and total service and submission. That as they honor the Lord in their singleness, as they pursue holiness, as they spurn and cast aside the, the hookup culture that's so everywhere in our culture, they get to showcase the supremacy and sufficiency and value of Christ as Savior and Lord in a unique way that married people don't. You see, whether in marriage or in singleness, as Christians, we joyously obey God's word and we seek to point others to Christ by the testimony of our lives. So no matter our marital status, our aim ought to be holiness and our aim ought to be joy in God. Secondly, the church has a spiritual interest in your marriage. Malachi shows us that marriage is not just this private matter, 
that it is a public matter that impacts the entire covenant community of God's people. That because, remember Malachi, because of Israel's faithlessness in marriage, God does not accept their worship. That, that means that your local church has a vested interest in the spiritual health of your marriage. This means that every Christian should be connected to a local church, a community of believers, where there is instruction, accountability, and help in time of need in every area of life, including your marriage. And so by spurning the ongoing ministry of a local church, you are putting your own soul at risk. And not just your own soul, you're putting your family, your, your marriage at risk. Issues of marriage and divorce are complicated as they are. Why would you try to handle them by yourself? Sadly, though, many churches do not care about shepherding their members this way. The marriage crisis that we see in the church today is owed in part to the negligence of the church. Churches have cared more about growing attendance and programs than shepherding its members through marriage struggles. That's sad. Pastor Mark Dever describes this neglect that so many churches have had on issues of marriage and divorce. He says this. He says, how many of us have parents who divorce their spouses only to have their churches say nothing? How many of us have friends or even children who, though claiming to be Christians, freely date non-Christians while their church says nothing? According to the Bible, the manner in which we form and keep our families plays a large role in our worship. You see, a healthy church a church we aspire to be at redemption, right? We are going to be a church who takes church membership seriously and who takes seriously the call to be watchful over one another as our covenant demands. We will be a place of help. We want to be a place of grace and forgiveness. We want to be a, a source of wisdom and guidance from God's word, seeking to help marriages that are struggling or floundering. That if you are a member of Redemption Church, to put it as bluntly as I can, Redemption Church cares who you marry. Redemption Church cares about your marriage. Redemption Church won't sit on the bench when your marriage is falling apart. Redemption Church will not be silent when you utter the word divorce in a conversation. By becoming a member of this church, you have joyously opened up your life to this sort of grace-filled ministry from God's word. And Malachi shows us that private marriages have a bearing on the entire covenant community, on the entire community of the local church. So as Redemption Church, we want to love you. We want to counsel you. We want to assist you. We want to pray for you. We want to instruct you and correct you and help you, particularly in those moments when your marriage seems to be unwinding. We want to help you to be faithful to the Lord in such matters, not faithless, nor do we want to turn a blind eye to your faithlessness when it comes to marriage. God does not take marriage lightly, and neither should his church. So if you are single, and if you're struggling to know, is this person a person I ought to be dating? Are there any concerns that I ought to be having about this individual? I pray that you have other members in this church who know you and who love you and who will speak such truths on that matter and that you would have the humility to listen. Do not date in secret or pursue marriage with someone in secret. 
And do not do that completely disconnected from the safety of the covenant community in which God has placed you. We want to give you help. We want to give you wisdom as you seek the Lord's will for your marriage. So if you are married and you are struggling, let me urge you, do not hide your struggles. Do not hide them. The gospel frees us to be transparent and vulnerable. Yes, even about the most private matters of our lives. Yes, even marriage. Every marriage goes through difficult seasons. But when you do, you need to get help from God. You need to get help from his word. You need to get help from the church. The gospel gives grace to us in every failure and every struggle. So if your marriage even today is falling apart and you feel it and you sense it, you need to reach out to an elder today, right? To me, to another elder, we want to help. Don't struggle in silence. Don't flounder in secret. Bring your marriage into the light of the gospel community of the church so we can help you to be faithful in your marriage. Malachi shows us that the church has a role to play here, and we should receive the ministry of our covenant community as a gracious gift and help from the Lord. There's a third thing I want to stress this morning, is that though we may be faithless in marriage, Christ is faithful. Though we may be faithless, Christ is faithful. So this morning, I do join in Malachi's voice in calling you to repent of whatever sin the Lord might be convicting and exposing in your heart. If you are dating someone who is not a Christian, repent today and end the relationship this afternoon. Don't marry the daughter or son of a foreign god. Whatever reason you are in that relationship, that reason does not justify you disobeying God's clear instruction from his word. If you are contemplating divorce, hit the brakes. Stop talking about it. Go to your local church. Get them involved. Speak to an elder. Bring it into the light of the covenant community. The Lord hates divorce. And we should not quickly or readily discard our spouses and violate the one flesh union made before God. However, I know a sermon like this, perhaps some of you feel the ache of wounds of past failures and your faithlessness in your marriages. Perhaps you're thinking something like, oh, if, if I had only married someone who loved the Lord and who submitted to the word of God, or, or if only I had not filed for that divorce, perhaps you have in the past been disobedient to the Lord, faithless in the areas of marriage. But take heart this morning. Divorce is not an unforgivable sin. There is grace for you today. And there is grace for all who would humble themselves and come to Christ. Do not be haunted by past guilt, for Christ has paid for your sin once and for all. And so you, as a Christian, a new creation in Christ Jesus, you are not defined by your past marital failures. Christ has forgiven you if you come to faith in him. And by his strength, the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the aches and the wounds that may still very well be opened in flesh that come from the consequences and carnage of broken families, God will give you strength. He will give you strength in that hardship. He will give you strength as he grants you a new name, as he gives you a fresh start by grace. So wherever you are convicted today by the Holy Spirit, let me urge you to repent and to look to Christ. Repent and look to Christ. For while we were faithless to God, 
Christ was faithful. While we may break our marital covenants, take heart, Christ Jesus will never break his. He never divorces his bride. Jesus, in eternal love for his church, went to the cross. He paid the penalty for sin once and for all. He cleansed his bride by his own blood. And even though we may fail in our marriages, Jesus is the husband who never stops sanctifying his bride and he will never stop loving her. He never casts her away. In the countless ways that we have been faithless in these matters, praise the Lord that Christ is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, we know that these issues of marriage and divorce are heavy. Lord, I know that there are wounds felt even this day as so many of our lives have been impacted by broken marriages. Some of us have been involved in a broken marriage. Father, I pray, Lord, that even though we want to heed Malachi's severe word, an important word, a relevant word, a good and joyous word, Lord, we are thankful, Lord, that even though we fail, we have the Lord Jesus Christ who restores and who renews and who makes us clean. Father, I pray that those who do feel the pain and the wounds of their past failures, Lord, that they would be strengthened in their weakness with Christ Jesus. But Father, I do pray for those of us, whether single or married, or that we would glorify you in our singleness or in our marriages. Father, I pray, Lord, that we as a covenant community would help one another as we think through the incredible complexities of living in this fallen world. Father, I pray for our singles that that if you do call them to one day marry someone, that it would be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just the sort of believer that just checks Christian on the census box, but someone who is devout and committed to growing in the word and serving Jesus with their lives. Father, I pray for our marriages in this church. Lord, that even in their struggles and hardships that often happen, Lord, that they would be a testimony of the love of Christ and their love within their marital covenant. And Father, I pray that you would help them to be faithful, faithful. And Lord, where their struggle, Lord, may they be wise enough to seek help, humble enough to open up their marriage to the ministry of others. And Lord, so that you might renew and restore and fill their home with joy. But Father, as we consider our many failures, we are thankful that Jesus is faithful. And Lord, I pray that those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, that they would look with the eyes of faith upon him, that they would behold his perfect love, and Lord, that they would repent and believe in him this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.